Well, it's good to be back again. I'm, I'm so glad to be with you this morning and uh, to continue on this, um, this uh, Advent journey. If you weren't here last week, and um, <laughs> you missed a great talk, but the... Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, this, this is Advent, you know, and if you didn't grow up in the traditional church, you know, these liturgical season words may be disorienting and all, but let me just put it out to you this way. Um, I think there are two ways, at least, to go through the spiritual life. One is as a pilgrim or as a tourist. If you've ever been to Rome or Spain or places, you can always tell the difference between a pilgrim and a tourist, right? The tourists are all running around going, we've got to see the Louvre in 15 minutes, you know? And then they, they get there and they, then they can go home and say, oh, I've been through the Louvre. You know, they've been there for 15 minutes, you know? And they're just, you're just bopping around and everything's on the surface, you know? It's, it's you know, you're, you're, you know we've got to eat some Italian food. We've got to do this. We gotta do but a pilgrim is a slow, thoughtful plodder, right? They're, they're looking for the deeper places of the heart. They're, they're trying to get down into the precincts of the soul and find out if this God thing is true and if it is, what difference does it make? And, and where does the soul meet with the soul maker? So a pilgrim has an interest in the depths, not in the shallows. And... Um, so my hope is, as we're on this Advent journey together, this journey to the manger, that we're not going as tourists, but as pilgrims, people looking for a deep encounter with God. And you, you may be saying, you know, the only reason I'm here is they got bagels and my wife dragged me. Um, and so a pilgrim, tourist could care less, you know. Well, okay. But my hunch is, is that there's no one in this room this morning who isn't a, is not a meaning seeker. We're all searching for meaning. I don't care if you're an atheist or the Dalai Lama. Everybody is in search of meaning. And so, you know, let's come with open hearts and, and, and with the presumption that the closer we move to the manger, possibly, we're moving closer to the epicenter of the meaning of the universe. Now, I know that's a big term, or a big idea, but I think it's true. And since this is church, you can get away with staying stuff like that. So, by the time, um, I don't know about you guys, but by the time uh, Christmas arrives at, at our house, our mantle is just brimming with, with Christmas cards. Most of them are from like, you know, Restoration Hardware and Liz Claiborne, but they're all there. We have lots of cards, and the mantle's that big, but... They're all, you know, wonderful pictures of angels blowing golden trumpets and, you know, and little crush scenes and magi walking in the snow and, you know, and they peace on earth and for unto us a child is born and hark the herald angels sing. And so the other day, because I have a lot of time on my hand, I happened to be looking at that mantle and I thought, there's a revenue stream. You know, people are making money in this business of Christmas cards. I want in. So I... Got to thinking about it, and I came up with a whole new seasonal line of Christmas cards. I'm going to pitch it to Hallmark. I'm going to be so rich next year, I'm not coming back, okay? <laughs> it's the John the Baptist collection. Wow, People are going to be digging on it. Instead of cards, you know, like with um, 
cute little seraphim or cherubim, you know, peeking over the lip of the manger, you know, and smooching up to the Christ child. Uh, I'm going to have one with a picture of John the Baptist shaking his fist like this. And he's going to, above it, emblazoned on top of the card, it's going to say, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> right? It's great. How about this one? This is one that's perfect for friends and family, you know. On the front, we'll just have a smoldering, smoking Christmas tree, right? And underneath, it's going to say, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the unquenchable fire. Love the crons, (laughs) right? This is going to be fantastic. People are going to be swallowing this stuff up. Now, needless to say, John the Baptist seems a little out of place in the celebration of Advent, doesn't he? He doesn't seem like someone you expected to come to church to hear about at Advent. And yet, tradition has it that every year on the second Sunday of the Advent season, this very text and this very quixotic uh, prophet, gadfly, someone you would never invite to a dinner party at your house for fear of what he might say. Put him next to your mother-in-law. Um, the, the early church said, we've well, got to take a look at this guy who was out in the desert saying, prepare ye the way for the Lord. We need to interact with him. And, and here's what they believed. They believed, these early church folks, that you and I actually could not get to Bethlehem and the manger without John the Baptist showing us the way. As weird as it sounds, because he's so dragonian and so um, dark and brooding, we think, oh, why do I want to go with him? Well, there's something in this for us. So we're going to continue on our adventure, if you will. Isn't that cool? I thought of that on the George W. Bridge Bridge last night, the George Washington Bridge stuck in traffic. Anyway, we're going to spend a little time preparing for the coming of this Christ child by being with John today. Well, what what do we know about this kook? And he really was a kook. Well, the text tells us in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea. John is a man of the desert. Friends, listen. The desert plays such a predominant role in the Bible from Genesis through Revelation that it almost deserves to be its own member of the cast. I mean, it plays a huge role in the life of the people of God, this this place called the desert. If you think about it, right, the Israelites, they, they leave Egypt and they spend 40 years wandering around in the desert. Then, for example, years later, St. Paul gets thrown off a horse and we're told he spends three years in Arabia, which is a nice way of saying the desert. And then Jesus, before he goes out to his public ministry, spends 30 days in the desert. What's up with the desert thing in the Bible? It really begs a question, doesn't it? Why does God send people he loves into a barren wasteland? I mean... What's up with the desert thing? I think it's this. It's because the desert offers no place to hide 
from our essential selves. It is devoid of luxuries and entertainment and diversions. Wandering in the desert, we are faced with our core brokenness as human beings. The Shiraco winds, right? They blow away all of our self-delusion. The winds or the sun sort of bakes off, right? All the things we want to believe ourselves about ourselves that really aren't all that true. They expose us, right? The, the rays of the sun expose us for who we are. It's the terrain of truth. It's sort of the geography of self-reflection. It's the topography of honesty about who we are as human beings. We spend a lot of our time avoiding the, um, the truth about ourselves. In fact, I, I'm convinced that there are entire industries devoted to you and I not really looking about at who we are as, as, as people. We live in a very unreflective age. In an age when people uh, have a very thin understanding of who they are and of who they are not. We have entertained ourselves to death to avoid the question in many ways of who we really are, about our own brokenness, about our own need, our own sense of, of neediness. You know, you think about our past and we think about our past and we sort of minimize the impact of our decisions or our behaviors on other people or we think about our present and we look at ourselves today and we think, well, it ain't perfect, but it's pretty good. And then we think about the future and we think, well... You know, I'm, I'm a nice guy getting nicer. Isn't that enough? Listen, if you think about it, we're not unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees in this text who rationalized to themselves that as long as they were descendants of Abraham, then all was well between them and God. But I believe God sends people like you and me into the desert away from our distractions and diversions so we will wake up and realize that all is not well with our souls. Now, I know you're, you're, you brought your, your pal from work today, and you're thinking, this doesn't sound very Christmassy. <laughs> you know, like, this guy's in the desert. We're all reflecting on, well, you know, listen. Um, if you come to church and you don't get God, you should ask for your money back. And if I stood up here and told you that la, 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 you know, let's just get, be nice people getting nicer and let's go shopping, then you should ask for your money back. See, the story of the Bible is the story of people having to wrestle with who they are and wrestle with the God who is and find out that we are profoundly and graciously loved despite our brokenness. But we got to go through the desert a little bit first before we really come to grips with that furious love. It's a pilgrimage, right? It's not, it's not a tourist thing. It, it's a pilgrimage thing. It's deeper than that. The pilgrimage of faith involves desert. It always has. It, it always will. Now, of course, the irony here <laughs> and the challenge is that, the, is that Advent has been turned into the most distracted, diverted, overstimulated season of the year. In fact, this is the time of year where self-reflection is virtually impossible. Am I right? I mean, listen, I'm not kidding you. <laughs> I'm already a jazzed-up human being, okay? Like, 
my wife, my mother used to say I was like a BB in a shoebox, you know, ding, 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 you know, sort of all over the place. And that's kind of how I am. In fact, you know, <laughs> I get up in the morning, I go to Starbucks, I need a drip bag at Advent, you know. It's like, okay, bring it on, I got to go to the mall, you know. Listen, it's a hard time of year to be self-reflective, but I'm, I'm going to throw something out to you, pilgrims, not tourists, that might be of value. I wonder what it would be like if you could create a desert sanctuary someone, somewhere in your home. It could be a chair, a corner. I don't know where it is. I, I know where it is in my house. Where for the next whatever days we have between now and Christmas, you might go to be self-reflective and to say to God, look, Show me who I am so that by the time I get to the manger, I'll actually be able to experience Christmas as it was meant to be experienced, which is the great and glorious news that God so loves us that he has broken into the world. He's gone behind enemy lines, as C.S. Lewis said, to come and bring the message of salvation for my brokenness. Help me just though spend some time in the desert to really consider who I am and to consider my need. I, I love what a friend of mine used to say about the gospel. He says, you know, this whole Christianity thing, do you know what you need? He says, to be a Christian, he says, all you need is need. That's what we come into contact with in the desert. Our need. That's why John matters at Advent. He takes us into the geography of truth and honesty in the desert. And Christmas doesn't make sense unless you do that. Unless we do that. Now, um, what is it that, you know, we're in the desert now, what is it that John wants to tell us? Well, first he issues a threat. It's not always a good thing at Christmas. <laughs> and then he, of course, there's a lot of threats that go around my house at Christmas. But there's a, there's, he gives us a threat and then he, he gives us a promise. And here's the threat. He says, repent, or like a tree that doesn't bear fruit, you'll be cut down. And thrown into the unquenchable fire. Ooh, that's, that's creepy. Look, the majority of the New Testament uh, was written in the Greek, okay? Among other languages, Aramaic and others, but it doesn't really matter. But in the Greek. The Greek word for repentance is metanoite. Now, by the way, write that down. You can use it at a cocktail party this week. Um, <laughs> did you know? Um, metanoite, the way we understand it typically is... Um, you know, there was something we did before and we're not going to do it anymore because it was bad. Repent. I'm going to turn around and go in the opposite direction of some moral behavior or disordered affection that I was, you know, doing before. But listen, there's a secondary meaning here. And most people don't know this and it's really important because I think it actually changes the whole idea of the Bible and the spiritual life once you get this. Meta, beyond, noose, mind. That's literally what the, the word breaks down into. Meta, beyond, Noose mind. In other words, to repent is to go beyond the mind that you have. That actually, if you start to think about when Jesus says repent and believe, that's an amazing statement. He's saying, go beyond the little mind, the tight, claustrophobic, self-centered little mind that you have. Go from this life where it's all you to this life. Go beyond the mind that you have. See What's really there? 
How big and glorious and beautiful this larger story we've been called into is about. Go beyond the mind that you have. My, my wife and I have a, well, and our kids too, we have a, a little house in Dorset, Vermont. And we spend most of the, the summer there. And uh, it was either last summer or the summer before, we went to Bromley Mountain. We climbed Bromley Mountain one day, my wife and I, at the top of which there is a four-story wood fire tower. Do you know what a fire tower is? It's, I guess if, if the woods are burning down, you climb the tower to see that the woods are burning down, which doesn't seem to make sense to me because I, don't, I would not like to be four stories up in a wood fire tower if everything around me was burning, but that's just me. Um, when I was up in this tower, you, know, you can see all of the green mountains. It's really, really beautiful. And the wind is blowing. And then I realized to myself, you know, this is actually a great metaphor for my life, this fire tower. Um, most of the time, I am perched in the little fire tower of my ego, right? I am way up, and as I look out at the landscape, I see it all through the lens of my self-interest. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, I look out, and it's sort of, it's all about me. It's all about me. Everything is about the vantage point of me. Now, I'm hoping that that's true of you because if it isn't, I look like an idiot right now, <laughs> right? But my hunch is, just looking around, a couple of you are nodding your heads, mostly because you're thinking the guy next to me is all about him. But it really is not the case. It, this broken, this core brokenness in the human spirit is this radical self-concern. Um, that's what's plaguing us. I love what Norman Mailer, he was such a brilliant writer, um, he once talked about uh, being with Richard Nixon in the same room with Richard Nixon. And uh, in that beautiful way that only Mailer can capture with that very sardonic wit, he said it almost felt like Nixon had a little mini Nixon on his shoulder all the time, right? Whispering like with little levers and like little puppet strings. And the whole time, little Nixon is whispering into Nixon's ear things like this. How do I look right now? What's the person I'm talking to right now thinking of me? smile, look concerned, laugh. It's like, you know, this little mini-me Nixon whispering into his ear. How is this person inconveniencing me that I'm talking to right now? How can I leverage my interaction with this person to my own advantage, right? This little mini-me Nixon sitting. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a whole, like, board of directors like that, (laughs) right? I don't have, like, one mini-Ian. I have many with many interests, And they're all talking to me all the time. But they're always talking to me, capital M. And John the Baptist says, Metanoite, repent, change your point of view. Stop making it about this little teeny universe of yours, which is you, and open up the aperture to see that the world is suffused with the beauty of God. That every human transaction, everything in the natural order is brimming with God and you're missing it because you're stuck in you repent go beyond this little mind that you have so here's an advent experiment for you I wonder what it would be like if you just kind of went through your day and intentionally decided for the next couple of days that you would like to start to see the world from the vantage point of God instead of you 
it will change everything about the way that you do life because then you will begin to see the urgent immediacy of God in every conversation, every unplanned conversation, every person you meet, you will recognize is an invitation from God to deeper relationship with him and an invitation from God to participate in advancing his agenda in the world, not yours. It's a fantastic way to live. It's a life lived looking outward instead of inward. Thomas Aquinas, you know, just this genius, he, he used to talk about the sad state of affairs in the human life when it's in se curvatus. In other words, folded in on itself, curved in on itself. Right? We don't want that. That's not the repentant mind that we want to be about. Now, the text goes on to say, John says, change your vantage point or you're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking right now. You you may be thinking to yourself, please, Ian, are you saying that living a a self-centered life, you know, uh, deserves, you know, conscious suffering for all of eternity? Is that what you're saying? I mean, doesn't that seem a little disproportionate? Right? Right? Years ago, I was uh, uh, the guest of a friend at a very grand hotel in Ireland. And uh, it was a golfing trip, and I don't golf, and that's when I figured out that I was probably the caddy when, uh, when the group got there. But it was a very beautiful hotel on a small island, actually in a lake. You had to sort of drive across a... a I think we were actually taken over by boat. Beautiful, beautiful place. You had to wear black tie at dinner. So, I mean, we're talking about, you know, just a beautiful hotel. Well, after dinner, we go into the library... And it, it, it's, like a, it's like a room, a little bit, so maybe half the size of this, but, you know, floor to ceiling, you know, just antique books, just a gorgeous room. And when I go in, though, there's like a, a stereo on a bookshelf, and it is blaring big band music. And I don't mean to tell you, like, oh, it's really loud music. I mean, you couldn't even hear yourself thinking, you know, oh, my God, this is, and all these, like, little British people in, you know, fancy clothes are in little groups, you know, talking to each other. I'm, they, no one can hear each other. The, the music's blaring. Now, me being a good American decides I got to go in and fix this, okay, because, like, this is too loud. I can't talk to my friend. So I go over, and I'm, I go over and I just turn the music down a little bit, right? Suddenly, out of this armchair lunges the 60-year-old guy and he, like, the veins are sticking out from the side of his head and he's like, two brandy snifters and he's like, he's like screaming at me. How dare you turn down my music? I turned on that music. Now I realize what's happened here. The reason everyone's cowering in little groups is that this pathological bully has colonized the space, right? Do you know how when this happens, you can walk into a place and you realize one person has taken over and everyone else is just sort of terrified of what's going on in there, right? Do you, you know what I'm talking about? So now, I'm a New Yorker, right? So... I'm like, this doesn't work for me that you're screaming in my face. And I'm like, praise the Lord, I'm going to pop you. And, uh, <laughs> because there are, I don't know if you've ever read 3 Corinthians, there are some exemptions about kindness in the Bible. There are exemptions to rules in the Bible. I'll get you a copy. Anyhow, one of the exemptions is if, if an Englishman starts screaming in your face, you can pop him in the name of Jesus. Um, so... So I'm like, I'm like, this is nutty. This guy's screaming and people are hiding behind the furniture and finally the manager comes in and they have to take him out. And, but at the height, of the height of this conversation with this guy, what I wanted to say to him was, go to hell. 
That's in 3 Corinthians. You can do it. You can do it on the LIE. I'm telling you that. But listen, I the, you know what I'm talking. Why, why are you all acting so sanctimonious all of a sudden? Like, <laughs> let's pray for the pastor, you know. Yeah, you're all good people. Listen, I didn't have to say it because he was already there. He was already there. That kind of radical self-consuming, he's in the dungeon of self, just, just self. Lewis used to talk, Lewis used to say that, you know, essentially that um, the self, that hell will just be a place where the only thing that matters to you is you. I love my Thomas Merton, my personal hero, used to say this about the inverse, about heaven. He used to say, there's one thing true about heaven. There won't be very much of you there. So I don't need to threaten you about, you know, the hell of some future because, you know, of self-consumed, you know, focus. A lot of people, maybe even some of us, are already living in it. We're already kind of in it. So how do we get these changed minds? How do we break out of the self-concern that's ruining our lives, the the fire tower where everything we see is sort of self-referential, it's all about me. How do we get these changed minds? Well, John tells us, he says, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. John the Baptist is promising us that someone is coming to save us from this life. And of course, it's the soon-to-be-born Jesus. But check this out. John says that Jesus is going to bring gardening tools, right? He says this, even now his axe lies at the root of the tree. Now that's a very odd image. Most axes don't cut trees down from the roots up. They leave a stump, right? You don't cut a tree down from the roots usually. What's going on here? Listen, friends, here's just a cool thing about the Christian journey. Jesus is not interested in a facile cosmetic surgery of your soul. Um, Jesus wants to renovate you, reconstruct, reconfigure, recalibrate you from the root structure up he is not interested in leaving a stump behind. He is going to go to the root system of your person. He is not interested in making nice people nicer. If that's all, by the way, I fear sometimes that that's how American Christianity promotes itself. That is not really what happens if you read people like John or Jesus. That They're not interested in that. You know, it's interesting, in the Latin, the word um, for root is radix. And it literally means, that's where we get the word radical. Radix, root. So I guess maybe what I'm trying to tell you is, is that um, Christianity is a, literally a radical spirituality. According to the text, Jesus wants to dig way below the soil line of our souls, and he wants to do tree surgery. 
He wants to be the ground of our beings, the root of our desires, our actions, our thoughts, and our feelings. Following Jesus is a radical life, literally. You're living with the holy fire in your roots. That's what it's about. Okay, so closing up. Um, Here's the deal. For us to truly appreciate what's in that manger, you and I have to go through the desert of self-reflection, see ourselves for who we truly are in all of our brokenness and need. I, I love what a friend of mine used to say to me. He used to say, Ian, all you need to be a Christian is need. I love that. Did I already say that in this sermon? Yeah. It's my third time doing this today. Uh, <laughs> It's kind of like Groundhog Day, you know? (laughs) Am I still here? You and I are going to have to go through the desert and look at ourselves with exquisite honesty. We're going to need to let the sun shine on places that, you know, may not feel good being shined upon. We may need to let the winds blow through and... and, and, uh, blow off the dust and show our souls to be what they are in need of rescue. And um, we're going to have to wrestle with this self-concern that blinds us to the urgent immediacy of God that suffuses everything. That blinds us to that. And we're going to need to allow Jesus to have access to our root system to change. Because we can't do it ourselves. Have you tried? I mean, have you tried to be good? How you doing? Can you do it on your own? No. Somebody else is going to have to get into the root system and change you from below the soil line up. And that one is in a manger. That life started as a baby. And John the Baptist can take us there because he's that prophet of truth who can show us the way hmm, to the manger where that life resides and where if it takes residence in our lives will upend us and change us now and forever. That's the great promise of the gospel. And I pray that it's a fine promise of hope for you this day. So, let me close with a word of prayer, okay? God, I pray you give us courage to go to the desert, to let John lead us to the manger, to be that often severe saint who says, repent, go beyond the mind that you have, break out of the smallness of your self-concern, see the beauty of the world, the wildness of it, the glory of it, see your own need, and then see the Savior, the one in the manger whose life for us is life forever. In Jesus' name, amen.